I have a statement that's a biblical truth, and let's see if you agree with it. And if you do, I'm going to ask you to respond by saying amen. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. That's what you're just saying about. He's the rock that never changes. Stock markets go up, stock markets go down. People come into power, people go out of power. But Jesus Christ never changes the same yesterday, today, and forever. The very reason that we've been able to examine the book of Acts in the way that we have in the, the, it, what seems to be an indomitable spirit among those who are representing the church in the first century is because they knew that truth. They understood that Jesus never changes, so they could say that before kings and governors or slaves or prisoners. They could say the exact same thing despite the circumstances they found themselves in. They had the confidence to know that Jesus is their rock. Last week when we were in Acts chapter 26, and I'm going to invite you to turn there right now if you have a Bible with you. Go to Acts 26, where we're going to pick up this morning. We left off around verse 24, and in that first section of Acts 26, what we saw was an individual who is just like us. As a matter of fact, we landed on that conclusion at the end of last week by saying, Paul's story is really our story. God intercepted him, put him on a completely new trajectory, forgave him of all of his sins, and gave him an eternal promise that he would one day inherit heaven. That story is our story. We're just like Paul. But we also discovered last week that there's consequences when we share our story. When we talked about Jesus to co-workers and to our neighbors and to our family members, there's consequences when individuals hear of the gospel of Jesus Christ because some individuals think of it as foolishness and other individuals embrace it. Scripture covers that in 1 Corinthians 1.18. I want to remind you of that verse. You see it on the screen. We used this last week as an anchor verse. I'm going to come back to it again. It says this, For the word of the cross, which is just another phrase for the gospel, the story of Jesus, for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen, church? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you right now recognizing that those who have gathered in this auditorium are here for a purpose, and it's to praise you and to know you better, to engage you so we might learn more of your nature and your character. God, for a purpose that we would be encouraged in our walk, that we would be strengthened in what we do, that we would be able to speak more boldly of who you are. So we ask that you would take this time right now as we study your word and use the power of your Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us and shape our thinking. Help us to understand what you want us to take out of this text. We pray for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So it's 62 AD, and Paul is on trial for his life. That's where we left off at last week. He's standing before King Agrippa and Governor Festus, who are the leaders over the region known as Judea, or what we might think of today as modern-day Israel. King Agrippa has been put in power by Rome. And Paul is there to make a defense for why he has done the things that he has done, why he believes the things that he believes. Now, Governor Festus, who is also in the palace, listening in the auditorium to Paul's defense, begins to have a reaction to the things that Paul says, especially when Paul begins to speak of the resurrection. And Festus comes to the conclusion, it, it's too much, too much God talk, Paul. I can't take this anymore, especially this thing about the resurrection. It's the last straw. So we pick up verse 24, and this is Festus' reaction. Verse 24, while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. 
Uh, We saw earlier in chapter 26 last week what was going on. Festus is perplexed. People are talking about the resurrection as though it's a real thing. And he's confused. How can this be? Because he understands Roman crucifixions. He's a governor over a Roman empire. Pilate, who put Jesus to death 30 years earlier, was a governor over a Roman empire. So these governors understand crucifixions. They know how Rome kills people. They understand the effect of a crucifixion, let alone the fact that Jesus would be 63 if he's still alive at this point. How can Paul be saying, Jesus is alive, he's been crucified? And this is perplexing to him. He cannot understand it. Yet, he knows Paul is brilliant. And the explicit claim of the resurrection is too much, so he has to yell out, Paul, you've lost touch with reality. As a matter of fact, this is kind of like an offhanded compliment. He's literally saying to Paul, Paul, you're too smart. You're too smart to believe this. How can this be? Well, let me take you back to our anchor verse again just before we move forward with the story. Remember 1 Corinthians 1.18? The, the very first part of it says this, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Now that's verse 18. I didn't use verse 19, 20, and 21 last week, but let me take you there. This is what verse 19 says. For it is written, and this is the writer quoting the Old Testament now, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, God speaking, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Somebody better say amen. Those last five words are really powerful, aren't they? To save those who believe, even when other individuals consider it absolute foolishness, God says those who believe are saved. Now, my inclination after I'm reading through this passage and studying it over it for this long period of time is that in this situation, Festus doesn't really think Paul's crazy. Matter of fact, why would any governor send a crazy man to go stand before Nero? He absolutely wouldn't do that. That would be a a death nail to his own career aspirations. So he wouldn't send a raving lunatic to stand before Nero. What's going on here? I think Festus is really giving you an insight into his heart. You can see exactly what's going on here. Paul's words about Jesus have resonated with him. And he's looking for a way to escape. So he's doing what many people do. He begins coming up with excuses. Paul, you're nuts. So watch Paul's response, verse 25. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. It's very cool that Paul's not put off, right? He's not insulted. He he says, you're the most excellent Festus. I'll regard your position even. But these words of sober truth, it could be interpreted this way in the Greek language. What I'm saying is true, and I'm speaking like a person completely sane. He's, He's firmly asserting the full mental capacity that he has. So to support his position that he's sane, he's going to remind Festus of the facts of who Jesus is, the things that were common knowledge by calling King Agrippa as kind of a witness for him. Go with me to verse 26. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. So he's calling Agrippa as a witness, even if Agrippa's not willing to be a witness, right? He's the one who's overseeing this trial. 
I speak with confidence, meaning I'm not holding anything back whatsoever. There's one Greek word in your notes this morning that's in your bulletin that maybe you picked up when you came in. And you'll also see that one Greek word up on the screen. And it has to do with the concept of being very frank with someone, to not hold anything back. So how can Paul be that confident to speak that boldly, that freely, even to a king? Well, he understands King Herod Agrippa, like we discovered last week, is this individual who is descended from the line of Jews, just like Paul has. And the ancients have believed in a resurrection for millennia. They understood that there would be a coming king one day and that there would be a resurrection. Now, the death of Jesus and the claim of the resurrection that he rose again was common knowledge among the people of the first century. Jesus was a really famous public figure. Huge crowds followed him. So Paul could confidently say, this has not been done in a corner. These are public knowledge issues. Uh, let's look at the context of what we're describing here. This hearing, this courtroom setting, is only taking place because King Agrippa requested it. He's the one that said, I want to hear what Paul has to say. So the content of all of Paul's defense has been directly targeted at this Jewish king. Agrippa knows that there's a hope. He knows that there's a resurrection because he understands the Old Testament. He knows the Scripture. Paul said that this individual is, a, is someone who's an expert in the Word of God if you drift back up your eyes through chapter 26. So Paul's going to push him a little further. Verse 27 says this, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. See, Paul is nothing if not direct, right? You ever known somebody who's really good in sales? You're looking at it. Paul's a guy who's really, really good in sales, and he's very, very direct in this situation. He's becoming bolder, a little bit more free in his speaking the, the word that's used in Acts throughout the Bible, throughout the book of Acts, is this, that Greek word that I put in your notes this morning. When someone's speaking freely, speaking frankly, it means they're speaking freely through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul pushes, do you believe? What's he asking him specifically if he believes? Paul has in mind the prophets, what the prophets have pointed to. If you look back at verse 22, you'll see Paul was referring specifically to the Old Testament. Now, if you're King Agrippa, and you're presiding over this trial, and someone has just called you out, do you believe he understands where Paul's going with this? The direction is really, really clear. If Agrippa believes in the prophets, that's equal to saying those prophets point to Christ. Why not believe that Jesus is the Messiah? So Agrippa is stuck. If he admits that he believes in what the prophets said, what the Old Testament says, it's equal to acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah, and it makes him look foolish before all the dignitaries that have gathered in the auditorium, all of the Romans whom he likes to impress because he rules over that nation, both the Romans and over the Jews. So now Paul has got him in a place where he's really stuck because if he denies the prophets, it's going to outrage the Jewish subjects over whom he rules. What does he do in this situation? Let's hit the pause button for just a minute, and let's go above the story. What is Paul seeing that's really going on? Because there's always a story behind the story, right? There's always something else really going on under the surface. What does Paul know that many people don't know when they read this story? King Agrippa is a king. He has everything money can buy. He's got power, he's got prestige. 
but his personal life is a disaster. We talked about that last week a little bit. And in this particular setting, we understand that this woman who sits next to him, Bernice, is not only his sister, it's somebody he's involved in an incestuous relationship with. He's got a problem in his life. He knows the Bible. He knows the Word of God. He knows religion inside and out. That's why Paul says you're an expert in all things Jewish. But he has zero relationship with God. There's no godly behavior in his life. So Paul has before him a man who is both powerful and intelligent and incredibly rich, yet he lacks what every single human being needs, a relationship with his Creator. In this moment, my mind begins to drift back to the words of Jesus when Jesus said, it's really, really difficult for a wealthy person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He didn't say it was impossible. He just said it's really, really hard. Why is it so hard? Because individuals have these things in front of them that keep them from coming to God. My experience may be the same as yours. I've met many individuals over the course of my life who believe the things that they hear about Jesus. Many people are convinced the gospel is true. They believe that there is no other name except the name of Jesus to every knee will bow one day. But to expose themselves to loss for the sake of the gospel, they dare not go there. Their reputation is too valuable to them. The things that they possess, their interest, too valuable to risk. Agrippa is a prime example of that. His high and lofty position is an insurmountable barrier to coming into relationship with God. So again, my mind drifts back to Jesus speaking. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus spoke about these very moments in our life. Look with me on the screen at something that Jesus said regarding these things. Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. That is not a good day when Jesus denies you before the Father in heaven. That's a great day when he confesses you before the Father in heaven. Jesus is just straightforward with something that's really hard to hear, but I'm glad that he said it. Well, this applies to Agrippa's situation. Whatever this king may think about Jesus, to pledge himself in a public setting especially before all the Romans who are watching, is absolutely beyond his capacity. So he's a really skilled politician. And I'll tell you how I know that. Because skilled politicians know how to handle a press conference, don't they? And he's going to handle a press conference. Because a skilled politician, when they're in a very difficult situation and they don't like the question that's asked of them, they change the subject and come back with a different answer. So watch how King Agrippa responds in verse 28. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. Now that's not what Paul just asked him. Do you believe the prophets? And and if you're reading this the way that maybe your old King James Version Bible is resounding in your head, I need to help you correct that thought. Because if you grew up in church and maybe even this morning you hold a King James Version Bible in your hand, it says something like this. Almost thou persuadest me to become a Christian, Paul. And and it sounds like he's almost there, like he's almost convinced. That's not what's really going on here. The actual accurate translation of that verse is this. Do you think you can persuade me in such a short time? Maybe even with a sneer on his face. 
because this is a king, right? Who rules over a courtroom. He has a reputation to maintain. The governor has just called Paul foolish in front of all of those who have gathered for professing Jesus Christ. So let's check, us, let's check this story here for just a minute. Back up with me in your mind to chapter 23. Felix, who was governor at that time, avoided the Jesus issue completely, avoided completely dealing with Jesus by putting Paul in prison for two years, just leaving him there, not dealing with it. And we arrived at the conclusion that he's, he's like a procrastinator. Well, now we come to Festus, who's avoided the issue by accusing Paul of being crazy. That's the guy who's making excuses. So we've got a procrastinator, we've got an excuse maker, and then we come to King Agrippa, who's going to avoid the Jesus issue by assuming a superior attitude. He's become very arrogant. Do you think you can persuade me in such a short time? One thing we know for certain is the king left the door open, and Paul is going to pounce on it. That's what I want you to see, how he does this. Let's go to verse 29. And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short time or short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. If I was putting a sales team together, I would love Paul to be the lead guy. He knows how to close the sale. He knows how to bring the question to a climax so that he can address the real issue going on. Here's how I picture this. At this point, Paul is not just addressing the king, he's addressing the entire court, all the dignitaries that have assembled to hear this trial. And I'm thinking in this moment, he's glancing down at his wrist because a prisoner is kept in chains. So Paul is literally lifting his wrist up and saying, I want you to share my Jesus, not my chains. The response is really, really gracious. You and I get a lesson in boldness here. Most of us have trouble even talking to other people about Jesus, let alone with a king. But to persist when you've been put off is absolutely remarkable. So hear this, how Paul is saying this. No matter how long it takes, king, no matter how long you have to process this, it's my heart that all will come to know Jesus in that moment. I think that's when he's lifting his wrist up with the chains dangling. So he's using Agrippa's own words back against him. Do you notice that? He's saying, it's not the timing of the decision, king. The timing of the decision is less important than no decision whatsoever. So many individuals arrive at the place where they just say, I'm I'm not going to make a decision about that. We saw that in the case of Felix. He just put Paul off for two years. Agrippa is inching towards that. So Paul's saying, I want you, no matter how long it takes, to understand who Jesus is, I have every reason to believe that Paul would keep on going. Luke would have more to include for us if it weren't for the fact that King Agrippa begins to stand up at that point. Go with me to the next verse, verse 30. The king stood up meaning Paul had to stop speaking. The king stood up and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them, and when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. So Agrippa rises, all those who are his counsel come to the side and they arrive at the conclusion, we've heard enough, Paul is innocent. 
The king has listened really politely, right? He's heard the trial out, even with a degree of interest, yet he completely remains unresponsive. To him, this is all about facts. This is all about information of Paul's guilt or not guilt. Move forward with me to the next verse, 32. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now check this. Paul has appeared before governors and kings. Five times he's been declared innocent. The very first time was by the Pharisees back in Acts chapter 23 when the, the brawl broke out in the courtroom, the Supreme Court in Jerusalem. This man's doing nothing worthy of death. That's what the Pharisees said. And then Commander Lysias, the commander of the Roman cohort, wrote a letter to the governor saying, this man's done nothing worthy of imprisonment or death. And then we find Festus declaring twice in chapter 25, he's done nothing to be declared worthy of death or, or imprisonment. And now King Agrippa comes to the same conclusion. So the question logically rises, well, if Paul's been declared free by the court five times and innocent, why is he not freed? Because all these things that you're watching take place are a fulfillment of the very things that Jesus prophesied would happen. First of all, bigger picture, God said individuals who are believers in Christ would be persecuted for his name's sake because the world thinks it's foolishness. Those who follow Jesus should expect that there's going to be consequences when we proclaim the name of Christ. Here's the first example of that. Luke 21, 12, Jesus speaking. They will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. Many people miss verse 13 when they read that passage. Verse 13 is the last part. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. When persecution comes against you, when you have coworkers and friends and family members even who say you're foolish, Jesus says that's an opportunity for you to share why you believe what you believe. To help others, individuals who are living in blindness, as we talked about last week, those who are dealing with this issue, they can't see who Jesus is, it's an opportunity for you to share your testimony. Now, the governors and kings before whom Paul has appeared, they would say, all these trials, all these hearings are all about finding out whether or not Paul is innocent or guilty. And I would say in response to that, they have totally missed it. It's not about Paul being on trial. It's all about God giving an opportunity in the midst of the trial to talk about Jesus that's what it's really all about. That's why I say they've totally missed it. See, you and I know what Agrippa and Festus do not know. God wants Paul in Rome. He's got a bigger picture in mind. There's something else going on, the story behind the story. It's about advancing the name of Jesus. That's why Paul is not freed. That's why the governor can't set him free. So Jesus has said, it's going to happen, Paul. You're going to go to Rome. Look with me on the screen, Acts 23, 11. Take courage, Paul, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. So after two years of waiting, two years of being in chains in prison, Jesus' words are finally fulfilled. The Lord's promise to Paul, you're going to go to Rome. Uh, we've just come to the last verse in chapter 26. I'm not going into chapter 27 this morning. 
The, the teaching that I'm doing is very short this morning. What I would like to do to wrap this up with you is to come back to two individuals that we've seen specifically in the midst of this story, Festus and Agrippa. These individuals have been shown the light, but they're deliberately closing their eyes and they want to return to life as usual. It is always astonishing to me personally to see the different reactions or the effects that the gospel produces. Some individuals hear the story of Jesus Christ and they view it as extreme foolishness. But on the opposite side, and I, I believe I stand among many individuals this morning who view it this way, other individuals hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the story of the cross, the word of the cross, and they view it as a display of God's grace and wisdom. Right, church? Okay, that's how many believers understand this. The cross is just a display of God putting his grace on display and his wisdom on display. So contrast it this way in your own mind. Next time you come up against someone who considers it foolishness, even Jesus himself, walking planet Earth, had some individuals who believed and others who said, he's demon-possessed. The guy is crazy. He has no idea what he's talking about. So to end it, I, I would like to ask you to ponder a, a question with me. Ponder what is it exactly that prevents people from receiving what Jesus offers? I mean, if Jesus offers forgiveness of sin and eternity in heaven, a guaranteed inheritance, why would people not want to receive that? My personal experience, and I, I believe it's probably the same as yours, my personal experience is that there's two primary issues that keep people from receiving what Jesus offers. Here's the first one. That's a biggie. The belief that their past is too ugly. The sin is too great. God could never forgive me. You don't know the things I've done, Mark. Believing that they have out-sinned God. Therefore, they arrive at the conclusion that they have to do things to clean up their life first to make themselves more acceptable to God. My encouragement to you this morning, if that's you, don't wait. Don't wait because you will never be good enough. It's hard to hear, isn't it? You and I are not good enough. It's Jesus who makes us good enough. Right, church? Jesus does that for us. Maybe that's the first time you've ever heard that. Maybe this morning is the first time you've ever been told you are not good enough. It's Jesus, his perfect sacrifice, who makes us good enough. Our sin is great, obviously, or God would not have to have sent a Savior for us. Now that conclusion that we have to do things to earn God's favor takes us to the second thing, which is a really close cousin, a kissing cousin. Anybody ever heard that phrase before, a kissing cousin? That's when first cousins are kissing each other, right? Okay, the, the close cousin, the second component to this thought that I'm not good enough is this one, self-righteousness. It, it's an issue of pride. In other words, those are individuals who believe that they can earn their own way, meaning they can do enough good things. And it, it sounds like this. Yeah, I've got some mistakes in my past, but man, you should see the way I serve the people at, at the homeless shelter. I've sent so much money off to the orphanage. I helped that lady cross the street. I've got a lifetime of that history. And I believe that God's just going to wink at my bad things. And, and he's going to let me in because the scales are tipped in my favor. A lot of people think that way. 
That's an individual who believes that they have earned their righteousness. They have earned the way to God. So number one, and number two, they're cousins. Excuse me while I clear my throat. Let's hit the Kring household also. Okay. So I've come to those two conclusions. And this week I'm, I'm working through my material. And I come across this quote from a guy who's much smarter than me. Many of you know uh, that I love to read old dead theologians, right? And, and one of those that I haven't shown you in a long time is Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon lived in the early 1800s, if you're not familiar with him. And he has this brilliant observation about everything that we've just talked about. Let me show you his quote up on the screen. The hope of vindicating themselves is a source of contempt. You might have to chew on that first sentence for just a moment. The hope of vindicating themselves is a source of contempt. For if they allow us to be right, they must of necessity condemn themselves. But if they can persuade themselves that we are mad, then they may be considered as wise and may rest satisfied with their own ungodly ways. Guy is brilliant. I love this theologian's thinking. If you're struggling over what he's just said here, this is, this is essentially what it boils down to. He said it in two sentences, it'll take me a paragraph. Individuals who hope to earn their way to God recognize that what you're saying when you say the cross is the way to God, that when you can come to God, you can come through what Jesus did naturally by the very fact that you say that the cross is the way to God, you're saying you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And that sense of vindication That way to earn your righteousness, that's contemptuous to individuals. Because if they allow us to be right, what the Bible says actually is right, they must of necessity say, yeah, you're right. I am not good enough. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. My past is ugly. I've got to have someone save me. But if they can persuade themselves that you're crazy, there's a sense of self-righteousness that kicks in right there, saying, well, that guy's crazy. My way is the right way. I can go back to my old lifestyle. Brilliant observation on the part of Charles Simeon. You might even want to write it down yourself. Here's my closing thought. It may be said of someone in our auditorium today or maybe in the 9 o'clock service or Saturday night in that service that we have individuals who are not far from the kingdom of God. Meaning, they haven't yet made a decision. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you've never made Jesus Christ the Savior of your life. And your presence in this auditorium today might be the very next step in your journey. Maybe you're almost there. So I'm going to take it one step further. If you think just coming in the door has been the next step, here's the next step. I'll even say it like Paul said it. Whether it be a short time or a long time that it takes you to process this, maybe you legitimately need more time to process the things that I'm saying. If that's the case, if that's you this morning, or maybe you know someone who's really working through this, trying to process this information about who Jesus is, I want you to write down in your Bible, maybe write down in your notes, this very next verse that I'm gonna close with, and it comes from the book of John. It's Jesus' own words himself, John 3, verse 36. 
The, the first part of it, you better get your amens on for this first part. It says this, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. That's great news, right? That's God's promise. He who believes in Jesus Christ has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Man, that's hard news. And people don't like that. But it's the truth. It's a God of love who says that. Because we're all born into sin. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. I'll just give you the space you need to chew on that and process that information. But I'm going to pray right now. And I, I invite you to pray with me that we will take these things very seriously. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are with me at this moment in this auditorium. And I know you look down upon us with favor for having spent time studying your word. But I also pray for those who are in the auditorium right now that have not yet made a decision and really wrestling through, is this true or not? Maybe even thinking I'm crazy at this moment. God, I ask that you would be especially close to that person, that the power of your Holy Spirit would override any doubt, that you would bring conviction where there needs to be conviction. A, a sense, God, that we are sinners who need a Savior. I sense even your Holy Spirit is pressing upon some individuals right now. God, I pray that you not allow that individual to leave here today without dealing with this. And for those who need more time to process it, God, I ask that you would illuminate their eyes. Give them a capacity to see what they cannot see on their own. We know that you can do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, I, I do pray again for the brothers and sisters in Christ who have gathered here, these men and women and students, that they would be bold like we've seen Paul be bold in the story today, to speak even to kings because we know that we know that we know that you are our rock. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You never change. And so therefore, we can depend upon you for our eternal inheritance. We praise you for this in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Have a great day, New Hope.